You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Happy Christmas, everyone. Uh, If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Titus, uh, chapter 2. Today we are in our fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, where we lit the love candle, and I'd like to meditate with you, focus in on um, these words from Titus 2.11. Let me pray first before I read. Um, Titus 2.11 is where we're going to be at this morning. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for this, this season of uh, Advent, of waiting for Christmas uh, day, Christmas night at midnight, when uh, we celebrate um, as a as a world, really, you are, you are entering into our world uh, to rescue us from sin. Um, as the song we sang says, uh, uh, until you came into our world um, and our, the, our soul felt its worth. Like, we, we have a hard time understanding how much we're worth until, God, you took on flesh and became a baby. Um, that's how much we're worth. And... Uh, even today, even right now, I know that there's many that don't grasp that, that don't understand that. So I pray that um, if there's anything that we glean from today is that we glean that, Lord, how much you love us, God. Um, we need that, especially during this time of the year, especially with everything going on in our very, very torn apart world. Um, we need, the soul needs to feel its worth, God. So show us that this morning as we look to your scriptures and we pray in Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Paul, the apostle, um, wrote the book of Titus. And he uses here one of his favorite words. He always opens up his letters by saying, um, grace and peace to you. Grace. Um, Charis is the word in Greek. And he loves this word so much. He loves it so much because he's been saved by it. He's been touched by the radical grace of God. See, before Paul, the apostle, was a follower of the way, follower of Jesus. He persecuted Christians, people who followed Christ. He would hunt them out and, um, and kill them, literally. Um, go and throw them in prison, persecute them, kill them. And then one day, Christ saved him. Christ knocked him off his high horse, literally. He was riding on a horse on the road to Damascus. God knocked him off. Jesus knocked him off and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was his name before it was Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes uh, his people very personally. And, and Paul, being a murderer, had a touch, uh, encounter with grace, with charis, the favor of God. And so this word, because he experienced it, became his favorite word to use all the time. When he, when he expressed the gospel, it would be charis, grace. The gospel is a gospel of grace. God is a God of grace. I've been saved by grace and grace to you. Grace marked his life. And so in Titus, he says this sentence. This sentence is what I want to meditate on this morning with you. Uh, Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. I cannot think of a better sentence of Christmas in all of the New Testament. The grace of God has appeared. Christmas is the appearance of grace. Grace can be a very hard word to teach. Quite often, grace is better caught than taught. 
If I try to break down the word or, or, or semantically show you what it means, it's really difficult because it becomes elusive. Philip Yancey, the author of several books on grace, says that he calls grace the, la- the very last best word. It's the last best word because every English usage retains some of the glory of the original word. So when we talk about grace, even today, sometimes the etymology of the word will change the word completely. and It doesn't even mean the same thing anymore. But grace maintains it. Grace, he says, is the last great word because even in the word grace today maintains the original meaning of unmerited favor. But even when we just say that, if I define it as, hey, grace is unmerited favor. Hey, unmerited favor has appeared. When we simply define it, it still it proves itself elusive because the, the, we need to catch it. We need to feel it. So, um, so what I want to do today is try to feel it with you. Feel grace through the scriptures. But first through a silly movie illustration. Um, this is super, super silly. Bordering on stupid, but... Um, but I can't shake it. Ever since I saw this movie, I recently and finally saw the movie The Guardians of the Galaxy. And so funny. It's such a good movie. Anyways, um, a lot of people have seen it and like it. If you've seen it, grace can be felt in this movie. I mean, I felt grace in this movie. And it's the gift that P- uh, Peter Quill's mom, or the Star-Lord, uh, g- gives him. And it's a gift of what? Music. You guys remember that? And music is grace in this film. Rewatch the film and listen and watch it through the, 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 the lens of music being grace. In the middle of a dark intergalactic war and greed and the blackness of space, what makes it light and full of life is found in Hooked on a Feeling or Ooh Child or Marvin Gaye's Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And these things are playing and everyone's fighting and you're like, this is good. This is... And you know if things are going to be all right. It's like this hint of grace in the midst of a, uh, of a movie that everything's going wrong when, when, when music comes on. But grace appears and it makes you feel better about the situation. Grace appears and it, it appears through music. It appears and it moves you, not just emotionally. Not only do you feel like, oh, that's, those are his mom's songs. Or those songs are, I thought those are my mom's songs. Like that, that's the mixtape my mom would make me. When you're listening to it, you feel it. But not only do you feel it emotionally, you feel it physically. I mean, you watch the movie and you're starting to move. You're like, uh, and you start like to dance a little bit, maybe a little shoulder. I don't know, just a little bit. And then it's hard for the characters in the movie not even to to not even dance. Like the characters in the movie are trying to, I don't dance. And the music comes on and it moves them. There's something about the grace. Grace appears even in this movie through music and it changes everything. Now, some of you guys might not know this. This might be news to some of you, but I hope not all of you. I'm I'm imagining not all of you, but Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Sorry to bum you out. You're like, wait, what? And Santa's not real? Um, What? (laughs) That. Christmas didn't didn't start to be celebrated on December 25th until uh, around the middle of the 300s. And why December 25th? Why that day to celebrate the true light coming into the world why that date to celebrate grace appearing. They chose the date because it was during the winter solstice, the longest night and the coldest time of the entire year. And on Christmas, Christmas is literally a Christ mass, a mass where people would celebrate Christ at midnight, and still many churches do this, I'm going to be doing this this year, at midnight, going to church at 12 midnight, a Christ mass. They would light the Christ candle, this one in the middle, we don't really see it, it's shorter, this one in the middle, uh, and they'd light the Christ candle 
in the darkest, coldest night of the year to symbolize that Christ has stepped down into the deep darkness of our world when it was probably at its worst. Though this year was really bad, it was probably at its worst when Christ stepped into it. And he stepped into this and grace appeared. Light has dawned in the coldest, darkest of times. And the church has celebrated that on December 25th because it's the longest night, the coldest night, and Jesus Christ steps in. And he didn't, Jesus didn't come in as like the Terminator, like 30-year-old muscle-bound freak, like just shows up like, whoa, what up, guys? I'm here. He didn't do that. He came in as a baby. He came in as a vulnerable, approachable baby. Now, why did he do this? One of my favorite writers, uh, Frederick Beekner, writes this in his book, The Hungering Dark. He says this. Let me just, just let this literature wash over you for a second. Sit back. Enjoy this. The face in the sky. The child born in the night among beasts. The sweet breath and steaming dung of beasts. And nothing is ever the same again. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in the least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, listen, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe. That there is no place where we can hide from God. No place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong and just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. Christ comes in, God veils himself in flesh and comes as a vulnerable baby in a feeding trough of a manger. And Frederick Buechner says, nowhere safe. If God can show up as a baby, a vulnerable baby, born to a peasant couple on the run in exile and born there, as a, God can show up anywhere. God will go through any lengths to get you, to show you his grace. God will go through anything to show you his love. God would do anything. If God did that, if we, if we actually saw the, 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 the filthy picture of the manger, the filthy picture of God entering into the world through a teenage girl, Mary. If we saw that with our eyes, we would all step back like Beekner did and say, there is nothing that God would not do to rescue us. There is no lengths that God will not go to save us. And that is grace. The grace of God appears. The grace of God appears. When we see this baby lying in a manger, when we see Mary carrying the Christ child, we see the grace of God appearing. And there's music Angels we have heard on high. And there's beauty. We are told explicitly what this baby is here to do. Turn your Bibles over to the left to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. I could not get away from reading the gospel account of what happened that day. So let me, let me read this to you. Matthew 1, 18. If you do not have a Bible, it's on the screen. You can cheat by looking, but I prefer you look at a Bible. Verse 18, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. They were engaged. 
And that was legally binding, by the way, at this time. But before they came together, that is, they, had, they, they were married and had sexual intercourse, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, meaning betrothed, meaning it was a, it was a contractual agreement, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. It would have been legally divorcing Mary, being betrothed to her, being engaged. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son And you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. From the very beginning, we're told this is Yeshua, God saves, and he, God, will save people from their sins. Jesus Christ will be among you. Well, his last name is not Christ, by the way. I think I've discussed that before, but I don't don't have time right now. Verse 22. (laughs) And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The beauty of the Christ child, the beauty of Jesus being born into our world, the beauty of it is that grace appears, and it is God himself who appears. He shows up in the flesh. And this God is the same God as the Old Testament. This God is the same God in in Exodus um, the first time that God describes himself. When Moses asks his name, he says, I am. But then when he goes on to describe himself, like, here is my name. Here is what I want you to know about me. When he self-discloses himself. There's self-disclosure. It happens in Exodus 34. And this is what the Lord says. This is who I am. He says, the Lord, this is in quotes because this is God speaking. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord. Who is he? Compassionate and gracious God. He is the compassionate. This is God describing himself. So you and I can say all we want about God, but when God describes himself, he goes, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then that God was born into our world. Jesus Christ is grace appearing. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. As Beekner says, there's no link that God would not go to to enter our world and to rescue us. No one's safe anymore. And Jesus has become the embodiment of that grace, that compassion, that love and faithfulness. See, what makes Christianity so unique? What makes the Christian faith so unique? Is it the incarnation? Is it the resurrection? Is it the moral code of the New Testament? Is it the promises found in the Bible? There was a debate on this very topic in a British conference on comparative religions. Experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. And they were debating, okay, what makes Christianity distinct from all other religions? Is it the incarnation? And they decided, well, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form, so it wasn't necessarily the incarnation that makes Christianity unique. What about the resurrection? And then someone says, again, other religions had accounts of return from the death. As the story goes, the debate went on and on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. C.S. Lewis wanders into the room like he does. Just shows up. And he shows up in the room and he says, what's all the rumpus about? And they said, we're discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis famously responded, oh, that's easy. 
it's grace. Yeah. Dropped the mic and walked out of the room. <laughs> After discussion in this conference, the conference agreed. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, with no strings attached, seemed to go against every instinct of humanity. No one would have made this up. Jesus would go on to tell subversive stories about this scandalous grace. He is the embodiment of this grace. Grace has appeared and it's appeared through Jesus. And when he tells stories like this, we call them parables, he tells stories of his grace. He's like, my grace has shown up. My grace has appeared. Jesus tells parables and he tells these parables, um, especially in Luke, in Luke 15, we, we, he tells these parables to correct our notions about who God is and who God loves. See, religion will tell you who God is and who God loves all the time. I tell you, God loves these people and he doesn't like these people. And then if you want to be the kind of person that God loves, you have to do this, this, and this. That's what religion does. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he annihilates all that. He starts telling stories about, let me, let me teach you who God really loves. And in Luke, we have a string of parables that Jesus shows the grace of God through. In Luke 15, we read about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and a lost son. And here's the setup for the whole thing. Verse one, chapter 15 of Luke. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers, now notice who it was, it was tax collectors and sinners. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How disgusting. Jesus spends time with these people. Jesus spends time with these tax collectors, these sinners. We're the religious ones. We know how to keep them away. We know how to keep them out. Jesus obviously hasn't learned that yet. And then he goes on to tell them a story. Let me tell you a story. And he starts with the story of a lost sheep. So this owner has 100 sheep, and one of them goes missing in the wilderness. And this owner leaves. This doesn't make sense, math-wise. This owner leaves the 99, and he goes after the one sheep. Everyone would go, whoa, count your losses, man. Like, just let that sheep go. You have 99 left. You have to take care of that. Jesus tells a parable. No, he leaves the 99, and he goes after the one. And guess what? He goes searching high and low, and he finds it. And he throws it on its shoulders, and he walks back to the camp, and he sets it down, and you know what he does next? He calls his friends and his neighbors, and he says, rejoice with me, would you? I lost a sheep, and I just found it. I want to throw a party. Would you party with me? That's, what he, that's, that's the parable. And then he goes, next parable. A lost coin. A woman has 10 coins and she loses one. And this one is precious to her. So she leaves the other nine. I don't know what she does. She keeps them in her pocket. Whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and she lights a lamp and she sweeps the entire house and she searches carefully and she finds the coin. And what she does is this. She calls her friends over. She says, rejoice with me, would you? I lost something of great value and I just found it. Would you party with me? I want to throw a party for my coin. <laughs> and the third parable, the one right after that is about a lost son. And this lost son was with the father and he says, I, basically, I, I hate you, I wish you were dead. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Dad, I want all, your, all my inheritance now. Just give me what's mine. And he goes and he spends it on everything that you would, if you were running from your father, you'd spend your money on. And he wastes it. And I don't know how long he's gone, two years, three years, four years, five years, however long, and he's gone. His dad doesn't hear from him, doesn't write, nothing. And he wastes all the money. And he comes to his senses, it says, 
and he, he has this argument in his head going, I'm eating with pigs. It's probably better if I was just a servant at home. And so he constructs, Jesus tells that he almost like constructs an argument with himself. Uh, one, he's kind of going to, uh, a canned speech that he's going to give to his dad when he gets home. He's like, okay, I'm going to go home. My dad's probably going to be so angry. I wasted, I didn't invest it. Man, I wish I was smarter with the money. I wish it would last longer. He's going to think I need, I don't need him, but I left. I do need him, but I, okay, so what I'll do is this. I'll say, I've, sin, I've sinned against you. I'm so, I'm so wrong. Can I, just, can I just be a servant in your house and you just pay me, please? That's what I'll say. So Jesus tells a parable and he, the dad's like, when he's a long way off, his dad came running and distinguished Jewish men didn't run. It says when he would run, he would take his cloak and he would tuck it into his belt and he, would, and he, would, he physically would run. It was almost a disgrace. And the dad sees the son a long way off and instead of coming home to, and I have, I have a hard time with this. I'm not really good at this. I'm not, I'm not good at giving grace. Like if, if you burned me and you left me and then you came back five years later, I would not throw you a party. If you said sorry, I'd go, well, why? <laughs> You're like, well, this, this. I'm like, let's, I, I, need, I need you to grovel a little longer. And then we can start. And we, we would, let's be honest, we would probably all do that. All of us. The dad doesn't hear any of it. He sees his son, he runs after him, and he tackles him. And he calls his friends. He's like, hey, we're going to throw the biggest party we've ever thrown. My son was dead, and now he's alive. Jesus says all these stories because Jesus is telling us what it, what it's like, what it feels like to be God. Because you want to you know what it feels like to be God? It's like you have these things of value and you lose them. Sometimes you lose them because they just wander off. Sometimes you lose them and you don't even know how you lost them. They were there and they're gone. Sometimes you lose them because they hate you and they despise you after everything that you've given them, and they go off and waste everything that you've given them. They didn't earn anything, and you give it to them, and they waste it. But you know how, what it feels like to be God? When you find it, when it comes back, when you go after it, and, if, and it's restored, you throw a party. You wanna know what it feels like to be God? It feels like this, you were lost and God found you and he's so thankful that he's found you that he throws a party about it. This is the grace of God. I don't even, it's so hard to understand. It's so hard to grasp that we would give the middle finger to God and then he would, he would subjugate himself to becoming us and taking on the things that take on us and walking in our shoes and then offering us free grace. That makes no sense at all. It doesn't make economical sense. It doesn't make relational sense. It makes zero sense. But this, the grace of God has appeared, offering salvation to all people. Kierkegaard wrote this. He said, when it is a question of a sinner, he does not merely stand still, open arms and say, come hither. No. He stands there and waits as the father of the lost son waited. Rather, he does not stand and wait. He goes forth to seek as the shepherd sought the lost sheep, as the woman sought the lost coin. He goes, yet no, he has gone. But 
infinitely farther than any shepherd or any woman. He went, in truth, the infinitely long way from being God to becoming a man. And that he went in search of sinners. The grace of God has appeared, and why has it appeared? To search for sinners. To find lost people. To, as Matthew 1.21 says, she shall give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. God has appeared in Christ, and he went after us. See, the grace of God is undeserved. We do not and can never deserve it. You can't buy it. You can't pay for it. It would be an insult to try to pay for God's grace. Imagine in a couple of days you open up a present from an unassuming person and the present is the most amazing gift you've ever received. Like physical gift. And imagine you going, oh my gosh, I'm so thankful. Can I pay you back for this? Would that not be the biggest insult? How much did you pay for this? I want to pay you for it. They were like, what? No, it's called a gift. Yeah, I know that, but I just feel like really bad that you would give me this. I need to pay for it. That would be the big, don't do that, by the way. Don't, I don't think anyone would. That's an insult. The grace of God is undeserved. You don't go, God, you give me this. How do I pay you back for it? How do we be even? That's an insult. You cannot. Grace is always a gift. It's never a reward. God didn't come after us because we were so beautiful. He didn't come after us because he's like, you know what, you guys deserve me to come down as a child, to be born, to take on your sin, and die on a cross for you. You know what, you deserve that. Not at all, it's grace. The grace of God is unconditional. Nothing can stop the grace of God from moving forward. Nothing could have stopped God from incarnation. Nothing. Satan, if you even get in Revelation, you get this like picture of what was going on in the spiritual realm or something. I don't really understand Revelation, but I'm guessing that's what it means. And like this dragon is trying to eat this baby. Okay, and you're like, I think that's Satan trying to eat Jesus. I think. Not sure, but you got a little glimpse of it and, and Matthew when he has to flee to Egypt because Herod wants to kill him. So I think that there is something there. Like nothing could stop Jesus from coming. Even if Satan tried to stop it, he couldn't. Nothing can stop this. It's unconditional. The grace of God has appeared and it offers us salvation. That's the truth. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is free. God is under no obligation to give it. It's his choice to give it. And the grace of God is freeing. The grace of God frees us from guilt and shame, from the authority of sin and Satan. The grace of God, when we realize it, it's freeing to our souls. And the grace of God is wonderful. Philip Yancey tries to, de- tries to define grace. He does a decent job, and I'll just quote it here. He says this. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics, calisthenics, that's a weird word, um, and renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. This one's harder for us, for me. There's nothing, and grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of, ra- uh, no amount of racism or pride or pornography, or adultery, or even murder. Grace means that God already loved us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. That is... By the book, it's a good book. 
That's what the grace of God is, as described by Philippians. That, that's, that is, that's insane. That's scandalous. To go, wait, 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 wait. You're saying that he loves me just like he won't love me more, he won't love you less. This is exactly what Paul is talking about when he talks about grace. He said, when sin abound, grace abound all the more. When sin abound, grace superabounded. That's what that word means. When grace showed up, or when sin showed up, grace super showed up. There was abundance of sin, there's a superabundance of grace. This is the grace of God. Now, what this does when our heart grabs onto it, Paul says, um, the very next sentence, and we're not going to get into it today. This is the meditation, by the way. Um, the very next sentence it's, uh, that it says in Titus 2 is that the grace of God has appeared to teach us to say no to ungodliness. And actually, grace of God appears and then, it, then it, do, it trains our hearts. It does something to us. But Paul goes on to explain what this grace is. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Go back to Titus. Titus 3. This is where we'll end our, our, our time meditating on this passage. Titus 3, Paul, just a couple sentence later, sentences later, then goes on to explain what this grace means. And he shares probably the best synoptic picture, or the, be, the best synopsis of the gospel. I think I've said that before, and I keep finding new ones that I like better. So... Um, but this is it, I think. This is my favorite one right now. This is like the easiest way to describe the gospel to you. If you've never heard what the gospel of Jesus, who the, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, here it is in miniature. Verse three. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. You and I were the lost son. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That pretty much describes our world. And then one of my favorite clauses that Paul uses, but. When the kindness and the love of our Savior appeared. Now look what, what Paul does. He says, this is the, verse three is the dark. Verse three is December 25th, midnight. The darkness. And he says, but the kindness and the love of our Savior appeared. But Christ was born into the world. But Christ, but gra he's saying grace appeared, but he's saying it differently. But when the kindness and the love of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, that's grace, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel. You were this, in darkness, in despair, a long way off, but the, what does he say? The kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared. What I would like to, you to think about as we close is that in Christ, the grace of God appeared. And I open with that Frederick Buechner quote. That quote goes on to say that no place is safe from God. He goes, the reverse is now true too. That God is not safe to us. Because what, God, what love did in coming down was he made himself vulnerable. 
He said, he took on the vulnerability of a child whose head you can crush with your hand. Or, when he gets too big for that, you can nail him on a cross. God has made himself vulnerable to us, to our insults, to our spit, to our fists, to our anger, to our rage, to our sin, and we killed him. This is why he came to this earth, to take on our sin, and we gave it to him in full measure. And now we look to Christ, who took our sin, who died our death. We look to him as our Savior, and we see that his incarnation and his crucifixion and his resurrection are the grace of God that has appeared to us. And we say, we receive it, Lord. We receive your grace. Good news means that you receive it. That's what you do with news. And I'm telling you, the good news of the gospel is that you were far off and you were hated and hating the world. Christ, the love of God, the grace of God, the salvation of God appeared. And it is here now. Would you receive it? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your unimaginable grace and your kindness toward us who believe. And I pray that your grace would be extended to people who have not put their faith in you, that have not placed their trust in you, God, that they would receive the gift of salvation, they would receive the gift of the good news of the gospel right now. As a response, I ask God that as we move into the new year, the grace of God would teach us. That's, that's been my hope this whole year. As we've gone through emotionally healthy stuff at the beginning of the year and our Proverbs teachings, and as we've gone through First Peter, Lord, we just want to grow in your grace. We pray that your grace would teach us how to live rightly with each other. And help us to show grace like you have shown grace, God. I know I need that more than anyone in this room. Help us to show grace. We thank you that you, Christ, have shown us what love is. We want to respond to that love. In Jesus' name, amen.